Before we uh, turn to God's word this morning, I invite you to, to bow with me as we go to a time of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we live in a wounded and broken world. And there are so many different strands and layers of brokenness and of, of pain and of grief and of evil. And so we come before your throne this morning, O Lord, as the flock that is under your care, as those who are in desperate need of the shepherding presence of our God. Lord, I pray this morning for those who are battling with various forms of brokenness, whether it's uh, illness and disease or grief and, and mourning or temptations and tests, uncertainties, unknowns about the future, diagnoses that they didn't want to hear, difficulties and struggles in marriage and in family systems and sibling rivalries. Questions about employment or unemployment, financial concerns and wonderings about the future. Lord, we are, as the psalmist said, the flock that is under your care the sheep of your pasture. And we so desperately need you, O Lord, as our shepherd to care for us, to guide us, to lead us, O Lord, when we don't know what the future holds, to give us discernment and wisdom when we don't know which path to take, to comfort us, O Lord, when our wounds are too deep to, to comfort ourselves. And to correct us, O Lord, when we wander astray. To bind up our wounds when we are injured. O Lord, be our shepherd, we pray. And Lord, now I pray that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning. May your spirit reign in this place. May it reign in our hearts. O Lord, that your word would be planted deep in our hearts so that it might bear fruit of transforming change that would be for our good and for your glory. Lord, as we contemplate and ponder the, the difficult theme of your judgment through these words of Paul and Romans, I pray that you would give us understanding and humble hearts to receive and that your spirit would be at work in just the way, O oh Lord, that we, you know we need to hear. And so where there's need for conviction, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would convict. And where there's need for comfort, I pray that you would comfort. Where there's need for clarity and understanding, I pray that you would clarify and give understanding. And so we offer ourselves to you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in front of you. And if you would like, you can also just uh, watch on the screens. The words will be uh, projected on the screens. But we are, uh, if you're visiting with us, we've, been, we've uh, started... Uh, 
preaching through a, uh, the book of Romans, and so a sermon series through the book of Romans, and we're making our way uh, through the entire book, and we uh, started not too long ago, so we uh, officially finished chapter 1, and uh, we now are beginning chapter 2. So Romans 2, this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 16. And if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. So let me set this up for you just a little little bit. So uh, chapter 1, if you remember, uh, as we've been looking over the last few weeks, uh, was dealing with the sin of the Gentiles and God's wrath, God's judgment against the godlessness and wickedness, primarily of the unbelieving Gentile world. And like I mentioned before, uh, as the Jews were listening to this sort of condemnation, God's wrath against the Gentiles, they were bumping their fists and shouting their amens, and they were in, in full agreement with Paul. And now in chapter 2, Paul turns the tables and he stops the Jews in their tracks because he turns his attention to them and says, you too are under God's judgment and you too are deserving of his wrath. And that way it's a little bit like the prophet Amos who starts by by condemning all the Gentile nations around them, and, and the Jews must have been, again, shaking their fists and celebrating. And uh, God, as God says to the prophet Amos, I'm against you, Tyre, I'm against you, Sidon, and all these nations. And then, without even a pause, he says, I'm against you, Judah, and I'm against you, Israel. And it's the same kind of thing here, and we have to keep that in mind as we listen to these words. But these words in chapter 2 are not only for the Jews, they are for all of us who struggle with these same Patterns and tendencies of sin. So Romans 2, verses 1 through 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. 
This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. You may be seated. Several years ago, at a uh, county courthouse near Atlanta, a young man named Ben was uh, waiting with his lawyer for a court hearing. And while meeting with his attorney, uh, Ben excused himself to go to the bathroom. And while he was in the bathroom, he found a way to make his way up into the, the ceiling. He kind of, uh, you know, took apart some of the ceiling tiles and made his way into the ceiling in order to make an escape. And he was making progress. He was actually doing pretty well going through the ceiling uh, and well on his way to escape when suddenly the ceiling gave way and he fell 10 feet to the floor in the middle of a small room. And that small room just happens to be a judge's chambers with a judge sitting there at his desk. And so the young man literally fell from the ceiling at the feet of a judge. In his attempt to escape, as you might imagine, he only added to his guilt and earned himself a far more severe judgment. In our text this morning, in these difficult verses, we see the judgment of God against sin. And like the young man in the courthouse, we, we find that, that no matter how hard, how hard we might want to or attempt to, we, we cannot devise our own means of escape. And we see in these verses what an awful thing it is to fall under God's judgment. You know, judgment is something we don't often like to think about, we don't like to talk about. We'd much rather focus on God's mercy, his kindness, his love, and all these things. But, but it's there again and again, consistently throughout Scripture. It's an important part of God's holy character and attribute. And we, and we do not and cannot fully appreciate God who he is in his love and his grace and his mercy without understanding his judgment. Paul says that to fall under God's judgment is to be the objects of God's wrath and anger. He says in these verses it means trouble and distress. And John, the Apostle John, in his vision and revelation, gives a little more color to what that trouble and distress looks like. Because John had a vision of God's judgment and it played out for him in scenes of darkness and horror. The sun turning black, the moon turning blood red, stars falling from the sky, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, the heavens receding like a scroll, mountains crumbling, and people hiding in caves because of the horror and the terror, begging the mountains to fall on them and saying, for the great day of God's wrath has come and who can stand? God described his judgment through the prophet Amos as a fiery destruction. And he likened the terror of it to war cries on the day of battle and to violent winds on a stormy day. Indeed, when we begin, even begin to scratch the surface of God's judgment, we can't help but to agree with the writer of Hebrews who said, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so as we ponder the, the awfulness of sin and God's judgment against it, it, it begs a question, and the, this is the question I want to bring before you this morning, and that is, well, who will escape the judgment of God? 
Who will escape the judgment of God? In our text this morning, Paul identifies three kinds of people who will not escape God's judgment. So before we get to that, answer the question of who will escape the judgment of God, we're going to linger with Paul in these verses and, and see who will not escape his judgment. And like the Jews, his answers in these verses may be surprising to us as well. We see first that the hypocrite, that hypocrites will not escape God's judgment. You see, Paul is talking in the first five verses about those who are quick to condemn sin in others, but slow to see it in themselves. And isn't that the way it so often goes, right? We are so quick to see the faults and the sins in others, but so slow to see it, or so quick to dismiss it in ourselves. It's kind of like a, like a, like a platypus, uh, you know, uh, criticizing a giraffe for its goofy-looking neck, right? I mean, how silly for a platypus who in himself is probably the silliest-looking creature of all to point out the faults in others without seeing it in himself. Many of the Jews in Paul's day were all about God's fire and brimstone against the Gentiles, but saw themselves as excused from God's judgment. In fact, a common tradition claimed that Abraham himself sat at the gates of hell to keep all Jews out regardless of their deeds, that he was just going to be there. If you're a Jew, you're, you, this, then you're, you're, you escape, you're, you're exempt. Trypho the Jew is alleged to have said, they who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, they shall nonetheless share in the eternal kingdom. Well, what a nice thought. In the first century apocryphal book, The Wisdom of Solomon, that sentiment is found again and again. In uh, chapter 12, verse 22, it says, While chastening us, that, that is the Jews, you punish our enemies 10,000 times more. So God, you know, we know that because we're your favored people, your chosen people, you may chasten us, you may slightly merely rebuke us now and then, but, but our enemies, man, they are going to get it 10,000 times worse. Many Jews believed in Paul's day that they were immune from God's wrath simply because they were Jews. And this tendency resides in all of us, doesn't it? We're quick to condemn sin in others and quick to excuse sin in ourselves. Jesus put it rather bluntly when he said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, he says, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And that's what Paul is getting at here in Romans 2. He says, you have, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, you are condemning yourself, for you who pass judgment do the same things. And Paul is not saying that, that, all, that the Jews commit all the same sins as the Gentiles do or that we all sin in precisely the same way that others sin. That's not what Paul is saying. He's simply calling out the hypocrisy of condemning sin in others without seeing it in yourself. And he asks this penetrating question that reveals the, the seriousness of this kind of hypocrisy. He says, so when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? And the answer, of course, is no, you will not. Unre unrepentant hypocrites will not escape God's judgment. 
As Paul says in verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says in verse 4 that to demonstrate this kind of hypocrisy is to show contempt for the riches of God's kindness. In other words, what that means, that the, the word contempt, it means that we take God's kindness for granted. We, we feel entitled to it. We, we minimize our sin and, and presume upon his mercy as if it's our right to attain it. Some of you may, are, may be familiar with the Book of Common Prayer, which is a kind of a classic book that's a, uh, the, the, a liturgical book that's used with, has all kinds of written prayers and, and, uh, and uh, different uh, uh, words and liturgies and refrains used for worship. Um, and there's a pretty common uh, prayer of confession in the Book of Common Prayer. And, and not long ago, someone rewrote that, that prayer of confession in a satirical way to reflect our shallow view of sin. So they, they took that, that classic prayer of confession and they, they made it sort of a modernized how we might, and many of us today might instead say a, a prayer of confession. And that rewritten prayer looks, uh, reads like this, dear benevolent and easygoing parent, instead of our heavenly father, I have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're really not my fault. Due to forces beyond my control, I have sometimes failed to act in accordance with my own best interests. But under the circumstances, understand, I, I did the best that I could. I'm glad to say I'm doing okay, perhaps even above average. And so be your own sweet self. And grant that I may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep my self-respect. I ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which I have a right to expect from you. Amen. Well, Paul issues a sober warning to those who are quick to condemn sin in others, but slow to see it in themselves. The unrepentant hypocrites, he says, will not escape God's judgment. Now, we could maybe use just a little dose of humor at this point. So let me give you, if, if you're familiar with the actor and comedian Steve Martin, Steve Martin once uh, commented on hypocrisy and he said, don't criticize anybody before walking, or don't criticize any man before walking a mile in his shoes. That way, uh, you know, when you do criticize him, you'll be a mile away and you'll have his shoes. <laughs> so that's the first kind of person that Paul says uh, will not escape God's judgment, and that is the hypocrites. All right, number two, the second, uh, Paul says the, the self-seeking who fail to do good also will not escape God's judgment. So uh, quoting Psalm 60, uh, 62 verse 12, Paul says, God will repay each one according to what he has done. And he then elaborates on that principle, saying, uh, to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, let me just say, some are troubled by these words because they seem to contradict what Paul uh, says so often elsewhere, that we are saved by faith and not by works. So how can Paul say that we're judged by works here? What, you know, is he contradicting himself? No, Paul is not contradicting himself at all. Paul simply knows that, that our faith 
is proved genuine by what we do. And so a genuine faith will persevere in doing good and seeking to honor God. As John Stott, I think, helpfully put it, he says the the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works in our lives. Let me say that one more time. So the, the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works in our lives. We can think of it this way. Uh, Apples on an apple tree are evidence of, of life within the tree, right? So the apples don't themselves produce life. The apples simply prove the presence of life giving sap inside the tree. And in the same way, the fruit of good works does not produce life, it does not earn life. It is simply evidence of life giving faith in a person's heart. If we persistently fail to do good, we will show in the end that our faith was not genuine. If we persist, on the other hand, if we persist in doing good, we we prove the genuineness of our faith. But notice we have to, I think, uh, read or hear or see Paul's words carefully in these verses. It's not just doing good in general. Right? So Paul shows in verses 7 and 8 that, that what he has in mind is the specific good of, of seeking and honoring God as opposed to the evil of living for oneself. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who either seek and pursue God or those who live for themselves. That's what Paul is getting at in these verses. Paul draws a contrast here between the good of a God-seeking life, which is what he means by seeking glory, honor, and immortality, the things of God. So a contrast between a God-seeking life, uh, the good of a God-seeking life, and the evil of a self-seeking life. You either live for God or you live for yourself. And we have to keep in mind that Paul is addressing here the false thinking of many Jews who thought that they would obtain eternal life merely by virtue of their, Jew, uh, their, their Jewishness. So they could kind of, you know, do, we'll do what we want. Hey, we're, we're Jews after all. We're in, so we can do what we want and then be exempt from judgment because we are, after all, God's chosen people. How great for us. We've got it made. We can do what we want. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works at all. He says, God is an impartial judge. He doesn't, he's not going to care at the day of judgment what your ethnic status is. He will judge everyone based on the works they do as evidence of genuine faith. Paul makes this clear in verse 11 when he says, for God does not show favoritism. That's a message especially poignant for the Jews. No, you don't get special favor because you have this whole history and pedigree of of being God's treasured possession. But it also is... Relevant for us as well. God does not show favoritism. He judges each one based on the works they do as evidence of genuine faith. In other words, we we can't hide behind our ethnic status. We can't hide behind our doctrinal confessions. We can't hide behind our knowledge of the Bible. We we can't hide behind our theology. We can't hide behind our our family history of of, of Christian devotion. I've had had generations of of Christian, of, of people who have followed Christ. None of that will keep you safe from the judgment of God. God is an impartial judge. He will judge each person according to what they have done. 
based on whether they are truly God-seekers or self-seekers. Number three, Paul says those who rely on, who simply rely on religious observance will not escape God's judgment. In the third section of this text in verses 12 to 16, Paul introduces the topic of the law. And again, he's talking mainly about Jews and their false understanding that they would escape God's judgment by their possession of the law. And Paul says, he says, no, all who sin apart from the law will also will perish apart from the law, but all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, it's not enough just to have the law. It doesn't matter if the law has been given to you. What matters is what you do with the law that has been given. As Paul goes on to say, for it is not those who who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, let me clarify. Paul is going to make very clear in chapter 3 that no one is able to live up to the standards of the law. In the end, no one is able to be declared righteous through obedience to the law. But the point he's making here is that if you were going to be saved through the law, it would not be enough just to have the law and to hear it read every Sabbath day, just to kind of go through the motions. It would require a perfect obedience to what the law demands. And the same principle applies to us. We can't escape God's judgment by by merely relying on our own forms of religious observance. We can't escape God's judgment by going through the right motions of of church attendance and Sunday school observance and studying theology and memorizing scripture and listening to Christian music and podcasts. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are all great things. We ought to be doing those things. And often, if we're not doing those things, it's evidence that our heart is not really right with God. But we also need to hear that While these are all all great things, they are not in themselves enough to save. You cannot expect to appear before the throne on the last day and escape God's judgment by saying, you know, hey, I I knew the law. I memorized a hundred verses of scripture. I I listened to sermons. I read through the Bible 20 times. I listened to sermons every Sunday. I hardly ever missed. I, I went to Sunday school faithfully. Religious observance alone will not keep you safe from God's judgment. This is what God said to the prophet Amos to his people who were doing all the right religious observances. They were going through the motions of religious observance but not living with hearts of obedience and faith. And God said to them, what did did God say? You know, thank you for doing all these religious things I said, it's so meaningful to me. I'm so grateful for your coming to worship and I'm so grateful for your prayers and I'm so grateful for your sacrifices. That's not what God said. He said, I despise your religious festivals. Your religious assemblies are a stench to me. Though you bring choice offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And Jesus himself echoed the same sentiment when he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And we might 
By extension, we might add, did we not teach Sunday school in your name and in your name preach sermons and lead Bible studies and and fight against evil and promote the truth in the world? And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those who merely rely on religious observance who go through the right motions but do so with hearts that are far from the living God will not escape his judgment. See, friends, this is the sobering truth of our text this morning. Paul came down hard on the pagans in chapter 1, and now here in chapter 2, he comes down equally hard on the religious. You will not escape God's judgment if you are quick to condemn the sin in others but fail to see it in yourself. Or if you are stubbornly self-seeking and fail to persist in doing what is good. Or if you merely go through the motions of religious observance. The seminary professor, uh, John Gerstner, once told a story about a time that he and his wife took a, a trip to India. So they traveled to India and they were on a, on a boat, on a pretty small boat, at least small by India's standards, and uh, they were getting ready to, as the boat was docking, that, that small boat uh, bumped into a larger boat that was already docked. And it was, there was sort of this minor collision, and the, it caused a little water to splash into the boat, and some of the water got on, on a John and his wife. And when that happened, the, the captain of the boat, uh, of the small boat, began to get really agitated and, and, and sort of kind of frantically gesturing and waving with his hands, and he was really upset about something and, and acting, you know, really kind of urgent about it. And, and John thought that he was upset because, because the, you know, they got some water splashed on them and he kind of you know nudged his wife and said man what what's the deal with this guy this lunatic you know he's like getting all worked up over over nothing just this tiny little thing as so we tried to calm the guy down he said you know it's it's, it's okay <laughs> it's okay it's just, it's just water we're fine no need to, to have a big fit everything's fine it's all okay but that only got the captain more and more agitated and finally because he didn't really speak English but he knew a little bit and so finally in broken language the captain said to them it not okay not okay out of boat and so they got out of the boat they finally got the message they got out of the boat and as soon as they stepped onto that dock the boat sank and he looked around he looked and literally just plunged beneath the water disappeared what the captain was trying to tell them was that that little collision had penetrated had punctured a a hole in the hull, and the waterlogged boat was quickly engulfed by the undertow and it was gone and if the gerstners had delayed a moment longer they would have gone down with it paul's message in these early chapters of romans is that we are not okay we're not okay We're passengers on a sinking boat. We're sinners, to use the words of Jonathan Edwards, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so that leaves us then with our lingering question. Who then will escape God's judgment? If it's not the hypocrites and not the self-seeking and not the, the religious, well, then who is it? Well, Paul is, is building toward an answer to that question, and he will state it multiple times in various ways throughout his letter. He will say in Romans 3 that we are saved from God's judgment when we are declared righteous in God's eyes. 
And the only way to be declared righteous in God's eyes is through faith in Christ. He says, but now apart from the law, because he says no one will be declared righteous through, through their attempted obedience to the law. He says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. A different kind of righteousness, not through the law, but through faith in Christ. This righteousness, he says, is given, is given, not earned, given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then he'll say in chapter 5, since we have now been justified by the blood of Christ, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And so he'll say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who will escape God's judgment? The short answer is that only those who receive Christ in true faith will escape the judgment of God. And, given this text this morning, we, we need to add this, because it's so easy to say, okay, faith, sure, I got faith, I believe, sign me on the dotted line, and I got eternal life, that's my ticket, I'm good to go. No, Paul says, a saving faith is proved genuine by a humble repentance of sin, a persistence in doing good, and a heartfelt pursuit of obedience to the living God. The message of Romans is that we are all deserving of God's judgment. And it is from this, this level, flat ground that we see more clearly what God has done for us in Christ. As the late 18th century preacher Charles Simeon said, there are, and I love this quote, there are but two objects that I have ever desired to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together. And nowhere do we see these two things together more clearly than at the cross. So let us come to the cross and behold the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. Let us come to the cross in deep gratitude as we see how much it costs to rescue us from his hand of judgment. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne this morning and as we prepare for communion, Lord, I pray that you would hear our silent prayers of response. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we so often and so easily take a hypocritical stance to sin and are so quick to point out the sin in others but so slow to see it or acknowledge it in ourselves. And forgive us, O oh Lord, for the many ways that we go through the motions of religious observance without having hearts that are truly worshiping you and devoted to you and seeking after you and pursuing you. And forgive us, O oh Lord, for the many ways that we fail to persist in doing good and the ways that we choose instead the path of the self-seeking way instead of the God-seeking path. 
Lord, hear our prayers of confession and surrender and repentance. And lead us, O Lord, to the wonder of your mercy at the cross. Hear our silent prayers in Jesus' name. Oh, Lord, as we come to your table for communion this morning, I pray that you would impress upon us the depth and the weight of the awfulness of our sin. And that in so doing, oh, Lord, you would impress upon us the wonder and the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the cross. For it was at the cross, oh, Lord, that the full weight of your wrath and your judgment against our sin was taken upon himself. That all of our sin, for those who have received Christ in true faith, that all of our sin and all of your judgment against our sin, he himself bore in his own body. That we, O Lord, who drove you to the cross, that that we, would be declared and considered as righteous in your eyes. There is nothing in the world, O Lord, more amazing and more beautiful than that. Show it to us as we celebrate communion together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.